Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Marika Day. Marika is an accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist in Australia with a special interest in irritable bowel syndrome and gut health, which came after her own diagnosis of celiac disease. We hear a lot about gut health in popular media these days, and IBS has become a far more well-recognized word than it was only 10 years ago. Unfortunately, there is also a huge amount of misinformation about diagnosing and treating IBS, in particular when it comes to dietary or nutritional strategies to do so. That's why I really wanted to speak with Marika today, because of her dedication to helping people manage their IBS through a more holistic, evidence-based approach. I can't begin to tell you how much I learned from this short conversation with Marika. There was just so many aspects of IBS that I was completely unaware of, and I really hope you learn a lot from it too. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. And if you can, please share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps to promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak, which means I can get even more great content out to you. So... On to this conversation with Marika. Let's talk science. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Very, very good. Um, just out of curiosity, I, I have to ask this um, because I'm calling from Liverpool and I had to brave the uh, Baltic temperatures to get here tonight. Uh, what's the weather like in... Uh, you're in Sydney, right? Sydney, yeah. It's actually... I've been, we've had such bad bushfires lately, so it's been pretty awful. Um, but today's a bit cooler. It's... So it's about 25 degrees now, so it's pleasant. Um, but we've still got such bad smoke here, so it's been, like, awful for the... I don't know if it's, like, on the news or anything over there, but we've just had, like... We're, apparently our pollution here is, like, the worst in the world at the moment um, because of the smoke from all the bushfires. So it's just been, like, horrendous. Wow. Okay, so, yeah, so that's something that we don't have to deal with almost ever over here, so uh, I can't even imagine what that must be like. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's not good, but... I hope everybody's okay. Um... Right. Uh, just for anybody who doesn't know who you are, um, God knows who they are, um, could you give us a little bit of an introduction as to, to who you are and how you got into what you're doing right now? Yeah, great question. Um, so I am a dietitian and nutritionist um, and I got into, um, well, I got into dietetics actually when I was uh, diagnosed, well, after I was diagnosed with celiac disease myself. Um, because I didn't know what to do with my life and I was diagnosed, this is when I was about 18 and was diagnosed with um, celiac disease and I just saw the profound influence that like from having that diagnosis and um, the changes that, you know, after obviously making the change to my diet and then seeing the improvements in my health as a result of that, um, I've always been a massive foodie at heart and I always thought I was going to be a chef or a pastry chef or something. So, yeah, when I found out that, you know, health and, you know, celiac disease has such an important role in my life, um, if I could combine the food and the health as one, um, it sort of created the perfect career for me. Uh, interestingly, though, I didn't actually initially want to get into gut health or IBS or anything like that. It was certainly not that popular back then. Um, but I, and I started with, um, actually sports nutrition. That was sort of like my area that I was really keen on. And I did like my, uh, sports dietetics course and everything down here. Uh, but I fell into working in the irritable bowel syndrome just by accident. Um, when I was working in a clinic that, uh, worked a lot with chronic pelvic pain. 
uh, and we saw a lot of people who had endometriosis and yet yeah, chronic pelvic pain. And as a result, they also had often um, bowel symptoms associated with that. So some sort of bowel dysfunction, whether it be just a constipation or something like that, or whether it be, you know, full-blown irritable bowel syndrome. So I just naturally fell into it and realized uh, how interesting it is and um, also how rewarding it is to sort of help people get their quality of life back. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, you just nailed it with that last part, getting somebody's quality of life back because um, IBS can be quite debilitating for people. And I suppose just for anybody who might not be, you know, anyone listening who might not be completely aware of what IBS is and what IBS means, could you give us a little bit of a, an idea of, of what it is and what it encompasses? Yeah, so IBS um, stands for Irritable Bowel Syndrome. And essentially, it's like a collection of symptoms. It's not really something where there's something physically wrong with our digestive tract. And usually it's diagnosed after we've eliminated, you know, all forms of serious reasons for the symptoms that you might be experiencing. So symptoms, common symptoms include things like bloating. Um, it can be things like diarrhea or constipation. So we've sort of got a few different types of irritable bowel syndrome. So we've got our um, constipation predominant, we've got our diarrhea predominant, and then we've also got a um, mixed um, type, our irritable bowel syndrome, where you can fluctuate between both of them. Um, and yeah, so symptoms, like I said, bowel, altered bowels, abdominal pain, cramping, and bloating. So things that are like really common to a lot of different um, gut issues. So it is really important that we do, you know, rule out those more serious issues first. Uh, and then, it, you know, we go to the IBS and the, the Rome criteria for diagnosing IBS once those more uh, serious things have been ruled out. Wow. So, so I, I really kind of want to get into some of the differences between the different types of, of IBS. Mm -hmm. And um, But one thing that you, you said right there at the start was that there's not something, um, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but there's, there's histi histologically no kind of apparent reason for why you have somebody has IBS, you know, you can't yes. look at somebody's bowel and say, this person has, has IBS. Um, mm. That must make diagnosis incredibly difficult. And I'm wondering, what does, like, what, what is the process of going about diagnosing somebody with, with IBS? Yeah, so typically they start with a visit to the GP. Well, hopefully they start with a visit to the GP. If they're not, I send them back there to do that. Um, because we want to, like I said, rule out some of those serious things. So things like celiac disease, um, things like uh, inflammatory bowel disease, so where we actually do have changes in the bowel. Um, things like, so that includes Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, um, and then more serious things as well, like things like bowel cancers or even things like ovarian cancers are another thing that can have similarities in terms of symptoms. So when they visit the GP, some of the things that are often uh, they sort of go through is blood tests initially. Um, often the GP will send them off for a colonoscopy and an endoscopy, depending again on like risk factors as well. You know, what's their age? How long have they had this for? What are the symptoms? Like, yeah, is there any of those alarm symptoms? So things like uh, bleeding or blood in the stools or um, those sorts of things. So depending on your symptomatic profile, when you present to the GP, there might be different um, a different path that the GP takes. Uh, but if all is clear with that, then what typically happens is that the gastroenterologist or the GP will say, you know what, we haven't been able to pick up anything. It's likely irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, and then fingers crossed, they send them on to a dietitian to actually help them work through what to do rather than just give them a list of foods to eat. <laughs> um, yeah, which, which seems to be something that a lot of people who, I'm going to say this, 
from what I understand, there seems to be a lot of people who self-diagnose with IBS. Um, yeah. And because of that, there's a lot of people who automatically go and they go to Dr. Google and Dr. Google will say something like, you know, remove this type of food or FODMAP, you know, remove FODMAPs from your diet. And yeah. people will do this without any guidance whatsoever. And that's completely not the right approach to be taking, am I right? Yeah, for a few reasons, because... One, you're not getting like you're not knowing if there's any serious things going on there, so you potentially could be missing something. I mean, hopefully it's not, um, but you don't want to run the risk, the small risk of a serious complication. Um, secondly, is that if you're not doing some of these things, so for example, like the low FODMAP diet, if you're not doing it properly, then you're not likely to get the outcomes that you are sort of hoping from it. Um, or the, yeah, the improvements in your symptoms that you could get from it if you're not doing it properly, which then I find leads to frustration and more frustration and reduced quality of life again because you've done this elimination process that's potentially not in the correct way, not properly, not reintroduced things in a systematic manner. So you haven't got uh, what I would say is a good outcome from it. Um, so then you end up more frustrated because you've just gone through this process and you feel like you haven't actually achieved anything. But then also I find with a lot of people, it uh, deters them from doing things further because they're like, oh, well, I've tried that, therefore I don't want to, you know, do it again because I, I did it and it didn't really work. And, you know, it might work better if it was done properly. So, yeah, a couple of reasons for that, um, uh, for what, why it's important, I think, to get the support. with. And, again, just for support reasons because it is such a – uh, debilitating condition for so many people and it does reduce their quality of life having somebody there to support you and just to listen and hear and go you know what this does suck um, and to actually help you and you know help you in terms of meal ideas and those sorts of things rather than just having a list of going okay well this is what I can have and what I can't have no, uh, absolutely because it, it, it's a compli complicated process and just so just so we're clear so obviously between the UK where I'm at at the moment and in Australia I'm sure you know practices are going to be a little bit different but when it yeah. comes to what uh, or who can work with somebody who has IBS or who can help um, let's say and, and I'm using the word treat very very specifically here who can treat somebody with IBS um, who who's qualified or what qualifications does somebody need in Australia to do that oh I don't think you I think anyone can legally do it I don't think anyone there's any sort of uh, rhyme or reason for like there's anyone literally like I'm, I've seen programs online uh, treating IBS um, from people like influencers um, so <laughs> uh, yeah I don't think there's any legislation here in Australia I would recommend going to a accredited practicing dietitian which is you know somebody who's like and even further than that like um, somebody who's done some sort of training in the low FODMAPs or uh, sorry the FODMAP diet or um, who has, you know, gone down the path of working in irritable bowel syndrome or um, in the gastroenterology space so that they are up to date with that sort of stuff. Because with dietetics, I mean, it's such a broad field and there's so many areas that you can work within it that, you know, if you are not working within that area on a very frequent basis, then it can be easy to sort of fall behind. And that's not, you know, the professional's fault of their own. You can only learn so much. <laughs> Your brain's only so big. Um, so I think finding somebody who that's their special interest and that's what they have sort of put their effort into studying and you know, the continuing professional development in that area. No, oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think when you, when we think about dietitians, obviously, you know, people start out very, very general, but people do end up specializing just like doctors do, you know, you know, if you've got a problem with, you know, your foot, you're not going to go to an ophthalmologist. So it's, 
uh, probably best to go to somebody who knows what they're actually doing. So uh, first off, I, I want to apologize because I, I, and again, this is something that you shouldn't do. You shouldn't assume. Um, I assume that maybe in, in Australia, there would have been some legislation whereby um, it would only be dietitians who could help people with, uh, um, with uh, IBS. But, you know, I have been proven wrong. Live again, another reason for not doing things live. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you mentioned that there were, there were two main types and then kind of a mixed type of, of IBS. One was um, constipation type and one was uh, diarrhea type. Um, I'm, again, not going to assume that it's as simple as saying that the only difference is between one is const uh, leads to constipation, one leads to diarrhea, or, or does it? <laughs> I mean, that's the main difference. So both are sort of characterized by abdominal cramping and pain and those sorts of things. And then it's the altered, the bowel type that sort of defines whether you fit into one category or not. And I'm going to try and quote the criteria off the top of my head. So I might get this wrong as well. But I think it's more than, um, more, I'm going to say more than 50% maybe of your stool types are like the loose stool type if you're in the diarrhea predominant and less than 25% need to be obviously in the constipation type if you're in the diarrhea predominant. Um, and then the flip side for if you're a constipation predominant. So obviously the majority of your stools are like hard, heavily, difficult to move, feeling like you're not fully evacuating. Um, and you're obviously not having very many loose stools if you're in the com um, constipation predominant type. Otherwise, you can easily, like I said, fall into that mixed type where, you know, and I've had so many people who have one day it's loose, the next day it's just a nightmare. So it's, you know, goes between hard and loose one day and the next, um, which is one of the more frustrating types because you just, you don't know where your happy medium is. For anybody who's just tuning into this conversation, welcome. We're having a lovely conversation about poop right now. Um, yes. <laughs> just, just, it's normal for me. <laughs> Does that mean that the, let's say, and, I, and I'm, say, I'm, I'm asking this in a very, very broad term, that the, the treatment modalities that you use when you're working with somebody with um, IBS-C and IBS-D, you, you can basically treat them according to the type of IBS they're suffering from. Yeah, so generally speaking, most people, are, I mean, when you look at like what people have come and tried in the past with um, the different types, I find that most people have gone down like a very similar path with it, but... Um, yeah, I, I believe that there is a difference in the way that you should be treating them um, in the sense that like the low fat diet is not all that effective when we look at the research for constipation. It does improve like global symptoms of um, irritable bowel syndrome. So, you know, it can improve things like cramping and pain and bloating and that. But in terms of just pure constipation, it doesn't tend to be all that effective in improving like the stool um, consistency, essentially. Um, the like diarrhea predominant one is much more responsive to the low FODMAP diet. Um, and so then using some strategies that you would use for just like chronic constipation can be more useful in um, things like constipation. Um, the other thing with something like constipation is also considering like pelvic floor uh, and like, you know, the muscle coordination and seeing whether like there's so many other things at play there. And the same with diarrhea predominant, there's other things at play that are potentially not um, related to the bowel. So uh, things like, yeah, like I said, like the pelvic floor can have a big role in constipation. Okay. Um, so obviously th there's a couple of different ways to treat them. Um, and there's obviously the, the, the condition itself takes on a, a few different forms. Um, but when it comes to, um, let's say, what actually brings about this condition that is IBS, do we know what may lead to it? Because I know in some people it seems to develop suddenly. 
Um, do we have any idea what might be causing it or do we have any uh, kind of clues as to, to where we, we might want to be looking? Yeah, so um, we don't have an exact reason like for what caused it. Nobody sort of knows, you know, this is exactly what causes it. There's no sort of causative pathway that we can sort of say, well, this happened, this happened, this happened, therefore you're going to get it. Um, there's sort of like a, a picture that we can sort of see and go, you know, these things do seem to play a role, but we don't actually know for sure what it exactly is like the trigger or anything. So um, one really common thing with um, irritable bowel syndrome is called uh, post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome. So after you've had like an infection, a parasite or a bite or something like that, um, a lot of people do tend to develop like a chronic sort of irritable bowel syndrome after um, having a gut infection of some sort. Um, so that's sort of one of the more well-known um, ways that people can develop irritable bowel syndrome. Um, other things then when it comes to like causes of irritable bowel syndrome, they're not so much causes, but more like patterns that we see with people with irritable bowel syndrome. So what we tend to see is that, um, and this was something that was really new to me when I started working in um, uh, pelvic pain was that, and pelvic pain has, has that similar pattern with this as well, is things like childhood trauma and childhood, um, like early life adversities essentially is something that um, it has been shown in the research as well to have, uh, a big overlap with um, many chronic conditions, so chronic pain being one of them and pelvic pain being one of them, um, but also irritable bowel syndrome. Now, these are just patterns, so we can't say that one causes the other because we don't have that causative link there, um, but there is certainly patterns with those sorts of things, so early life adversities and the development of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, other things, whether there is something to do with the gut microbiome there, we're still finding out so much information about the gut microbiome and there's obviously so much to learn in that space. Uh, and then other things like it's just life, adult stress, so chronic stress and adult stress um, and that gut-brain connection as well is looking like it is going to be having a role in that sort of causation of uh, irritable bowel syndrome. But again, we don't have any sort of causative reason for this to happen it's more so looking at patterns and trends of what has what we're seeing in people who have irritable bowel syndrome so, so you did mention a, a lot of kind of different potential causes there and very very few of them were actually related to diet um yeah, probably should have mentioned diet maybe but <laughs> but, but no I, I like i i think that that's really really interesting because when when we talk about ibs people automatically look for some sort of a dietary solution to it or potentially some sort of a dietary cause. They're like, something I'm eating right now is has caused this. Um, so I just need to find out what that is and get rid of it. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of alluded to the fact that there's a lot of other potential causes that have absolutely nothing to do with diet. And, and like, stress seems to be a, a major a major one of those. Um, what? So when people come to you, like, I just want to kind of get a bit of an idea of, of how you kind of work with people. When people come to you and, you know, they, they've been diagnosed with, with IBS, you know what, they've gone the correct route of going through their, their GP. Um, what's the, some of the first things that you will do with people? And I know that's a very, very difficult question because obviously every case is going to be very, very different. But kind of a, on a global scale, what are some of the things that you, you start looking at and working on with people? Yeah. So some of the first things that I'll look at is looking just at their general lifestyle and their like meal patterns their meal timings, obviously the types of foods that they're having as well um, and things like their stress, their sleep uh, and their management of those things as well. So I work in a very like holistic way. Um, that word is a bit woo-woo these days, but like that's, <laughs> it's the only way to really describe it. It's, so I, it. it's perfectly okay. Every time I use it, I cringe myself, but I do use yeah. it. 
Um, yeah, every time I'm cringe. Uh, but yeah, like I look at like all aspects. So it's not just the food. So it's thinking about, yeah, like you, you know, how is your sleep, how is your stress levels, is like, anxiety uh, something that is a big thing for you. Um, a really interesting thing I'm finding more and more is that this, and again, this is just completely anecdotally, is this um, perfectionistic personality in people with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, so I would love to do some research into that and see whether there is, you know, more trends on that. Um, but it's like highly driven, like, yeah, perfectionist personality things that sort of come through. So I find it really interesting just to get the overall profile of like, what are the, like, what's going on for these people in terms of um, their mental health, in terms of their physical health, in terms of their diet, but also their dietary patterns as well. So when are they eating? Like, are they skipping meals? Are they going long periods without eating? Are they grazing on food all throughout the day? Are they... Um, eating a balanced diet and so starting with um, things like that so thinking about like okay well firstly if they're eating you know a completely rubbish diet so it's just you know all like fast food or something like that then we obviously want to try and improve their general diet because improving the fiber content of their diet and the healthfulness of their diet likely will improve their gut symptoms if they're eating a poor diet to begin with. Um, now, I'm fortunate enough to live in Sydney in a fairly well-off area of Sydney and not many people have terrible diets in this area. So that's typically not, <laughs> not the cause of it. Um, a lot of people drink a lot of green juices and those sorts of things where I'm from. So it's not typically <laughs> um, fast food that's the big problem here. Uh, but yeah, thinking about uh, how are they actually eating their meals as well? Like, are they eating, you know, really rushed? Are they chewing their food properly? Um, are they eating at their desk versus actually taking the time out to sit down and, you know, enjoy the meal, chew their food properly, digest that meal properly? Um, or are they just going buzzing meeting to meeting, um, shift to shift, whatever it is, uh, and just shoving food down as they go and not actually allowing that digestive process to happen, keeping in mind that digestive process actually starts in our mouth. So uh, we can't expect the rest of it to work smoothly if we're not doing the, the first part properly. Absolutely. And again, like you've gone through all of these different aspects that are not specifically related to like individual foods. Um, you know, you, you haven't mentioned once, you haven't mentioned FODMAPs, you haven't mentioned um, probiotics. And that's, that's exactly what people, and, I, and I, I think this is very, very much to do with the effect of social media and kind of our exposure to different just basically our exposure to where we're getting our nutrition information from. But the, the panacea or the solution to uh, gut health always seems to be eliminate a certain food or uh, get your probiotics and, you know, you'll, you'll fix everything straight away. So are, are, are you telling me that the internet is wrong? <laughs> Never trust the internet. <laughs> um, no, no. And like FODMAPs and probiotics and those sorts of things is absolutely a strategy that I will use with, many clients with IBS, um, but it's, and the low FODMAP diet is not considered first-line therapy. It is considered second-line therapy for irritable bowel syndrome. So um, a lot of those things that I just mentioned, so things like the stress management, the mealtime management, um, again, looking at key dietary triggers, so like something like lactose is one of, like lactose intolerance um, is something that we do see quite frequently in people who have gut symptoms. So looking at some of those sort of key things before we delve into like a strict elimination like the low FODMAP diet um, is really important so that we're not just jumping, we're not skipping the entire first process uh, before we go into, you know, the more strict and more serious things. But yes, I don't trust the internet when it comes to gut health. <laughs> General rule. 
everybody, you heard it here first. The internet is is actually wrong. Okay, um, I my mind is blown right now. Um, I no one thing that I'm really really glad that you brought up there is that you mentioned that um, going to a like that a fodmap by a low fodmap diet is not the first line of defense when it comes to, or the first line of attack or whatever way you want to think of it when it comes to IBS, because it, it is something that people automatically, and I think this goes back to what I mentioned earlier about some people self-diagnosing and automatically jumping in and saying, okay, I've got IBS um, because I pooped funny one day and my stomach was kind of sore. So I've got IBS. I need to go on a low FODMAP diet straight away. And it's, you're kind of missing the, the forest for the trees, so to speak, because you've got all of these other aspects that are around your lifestyle. And, um, you know, like I, I said, you, I know you said that holistic is a bit of a woo-woo term, but it, it is an incredibly relevant term when it comes to health in general, because, you know, our health is not just our diet. It's, it's every kind of aspect of our lifestyle that we can, that we can think of. Um, so I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, but if we do speak about the, the whole low FODMAP, approach again it's something that people hear very 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 frequently and i know that there's probably quite a few people who one don't know what it means at all yeah. and two probably don't have any idea of the complexity that is involved in in applying that with somebody and i was wondering if you, could, you might be able to go through that a little bit with us yeah yeah so low FODMAP diet. So FODMAPs are fermentable oligosaccharides, monosaccharides, disaccharides, and polyols. So essentially they're just different types of um, carbohydrates and sugars that are found naturally in many foods but can also be added into food. So they're not, you know, things to be fearful of or anything like that. And, in fact, they're actually really healthy and, and or often really healthy. They're found in really healthy foods um, but also are really beneficial to the gut because they are fermentable. So they can actually be sources of prebiotics for our bacteria. So um, in terms of like food for our bacteria in our gut. Um, but in some people with irritable bowel syndrome, what we find is that these fermentable carbohydrates are triggers for their symptoms. So they're getting um, increased like gas, bloating, cramping, or altered bowel movements um, associated with some of these uh, fermentable carbohydrates, essentially. Um, so what the low FODMAP diet does is that we do a short period of time where we eliminate all of these high FODMAP foods. Um, and we stick to a low FODMAP diet for typically a period of about four to six weeks. I find that four weeks is uh, usually sufficient if it's done correctly. Uh, and then what we do is we go through a reintroduction process and one by one look at those uh, groups of the FODMAPs and reintroduce them to go, okay, well, which one of these FODMAP groups is the one that's actually causing you symptoms and how much of that FODMAP uh, of that food is going to be the amount that's going to elicit a symptom because and what a lot of people don't know with this is that you know with an intolerance is that there is always a tolerance level so there's going to be a level that you can tolerate it might only be a small amount um or it might be a larger amount you know and it's worth knowing what that tolerance is so that one you can free up your diet and have a, an improved quality of life by enjoying you know more variety in your diet but also because these foods are prebiotics or some of them are prebiotics um, and they're good for our gut microbiome. We don't want to be eliminating foods if we don't have to. No, I, I think that's a, that's another fantastic point because, um, like you said, a lot of them are prebiotics, and those are the guys that are feeding our our, our probiotics in our gut, um, which do play a, a major role in health. Um, so obviously, you have to go through this this four week period, initial period, where you're eliminating a lot of these these um, foods that contain FODMAPs. Just to kind of give people a bit of an idea of, of what those foods are, would you 
could you give us a few um, a few examples? Yeah, so some like common high FODMAP foods are things like apples, pears, watermelon, onion, garlic, uh, wheat-based foods, so things like um, like whole wheat flours, rye. Um, we've got leeks, we've got cauliflower, mushrooms. So like I said, all very healthy foods, um, but they can be a trigger for some people. And, and that's also why we don't want to be eliminating them because they are such healthy foods. And delicious as well, because you just, yes. you just kind of called out like half of my diet right there. And I'm like, what? Um, yeah, so th this is exactly, again, exactly why you want to be working with somebody who can help you reintroduce these foods back into your diet. And, and I, I think one thing that you said that, that really kind of stuck with me there was that there, there is kind of going to be a certain dosage that people can tolerate. And I think that's really, really important because the devil is in the dose. Um, and, you know, if there is a food that you love, you know, maybe you're not going to be able to enjoy it as much or, you know, as, as you used to before. But if you can still include it in your diet in a little way, I think that's a that's a, a, a huge win for some people, especially because if, if you told me that, like, if, if I looked at a low FODMAP list right now and I was like, so I have to give up all of these. The first thing that's going to come into my head is like, oh, my God, this is for the rest of my life. You know, yeah, shoot, yeah. you know, kind of thing, you know. Um, but the whole idea is to start reintroducing those and kind of get back to a, a more normal semblance of, of existence, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, what I find is as well that people typically, you know, if we can find what that tolerance level is and get them to actually consume at that tolerance level, that we potentially with time can actually increase that tolerance level. Whereas if they just completely eliminate it, the tolerance level tends to get worse. Um, and they find that even when they do have small amounts of it, that it is causing a symptom. Um, so if you find what your tolerance level is, I highly would recommend consuming at that tolerance level on a regular basis because it might mean that you can actually increase your tolerance to that food. And again, the exact reason why I don't have science to back that up, but, you know, it potentially is to do with the gut microbiome and we're actually feeding the bacteria that are helping to break down that prebiotic or that food. Okay. Um, I, again, I, I think this is some fantastic information because... Um, a lot of this, a lot of the information that people are exposed to is is basically running contrary to you know what you're saying. So and like you know people are misunderstanding or well, I'm going to say people are misunderstanding. People are also being fed bad bad information on the internet as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've kind of spoken a little bit about lifestyle and we've spoken a little bit about the kind of dietary options that people have and people that people can potentially use. Um, I'm wondering what kind of options do people have for medication or are there options available? Um, is there a lot of uptake for, for um, medication? How does it work? Yeah, um, there, there is some medications. Again, with irritable bowel syndrome, it really is like, ugh, we have some evidence-based guidelines and everything around it, but it really is, uh, there's not much there in terms of what is the correct method to, to go down. I mean, the low FODMAP diet is one of them. Um, but it is a lot of trial and error when it comes to irritable bowel syndrome. But we do have medications that can be useful for some people. And most of the medications focus on, like, symptom control. Um, so things like um, antispasmodics, which are helping to reduce down your symptoms of cramping and those sorts of things. Um, uh, things like Imodium, which are trying to reduce, like, the frequency of bowel movements. If you're having, like, a diarrhea episode, you've got to get on a plane or something like that. Um, so they can, they're very useful because they can help to improve your confidence in situations as well. So like if you are, like I've had clients who don't travel, like literally have not traveled in their life because of their bowels. 
Um, so knowing that there are some medications out there that they can use just to control their bowels whilst they are traveling and those sorts of things uh, is obviously incredibly freeing for people. Um, in terms of like treating irritable bowel syndrome, we, we've got probiotics, which again are sort of a, a trial and error. Yes, there is some evidence-based strains for irritable bowel syndrome, but again, I don't say, don't hang your hopes on them because they're not going to treat irritable bowel syndrome. They might provide some benefit in some people, but generally speaking, I don't see them as the most effective strategy when it comes to irritable bowel syndrome. Um, the other interesting area with medications is looking at some of these like low-dose antidepressants. So things like tricyclic antidepressants um, and SSRIs have been starting to be used in low doses. So not even in the therapeutic dose that you would use for depression, um, a much, much lower dose. And there is some really interesting research um, in that area looking at yeah the effects that that has. And again, it's likely happening, having that effect on the gut-brain axis and helping to smooth the communication lines between the gut and the brain and alter sort of that miscommunication that we typically see in irritable bowel syndrome because that's really one of the characteristics of irritable bowel syndrome is like a miscommunication because we haven't got like we said earlier there's nothing physically wrong happening in the gut there's some sort of miscommunication happening between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut that's changing like motility or changing secretions and those sorts of things wow that that's absolutely fascinating because i i had never heard of of um like, like you said, low-dose antidepressant treatment being used for, for that. Um, and again, uh, it, it kind of brings up a, another aspect of IBS that people will probably have heard of. Like, you know, people will have heard of the, the gut-brain access, but, you know, they'll have heard of it and that's about it. And it's like, right, so what does it mean? Um, it's kind of like, it's interesting the way that, that you put it together there, that it's just something is happening that is affecting the connection between the brain and the gut that, that's resulting in, in the symptoms. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of went through uh, a little bit about, you know, the diagnosis. We went through a little bit about, you know, the different ways of treating it. Um, you mentioned specifically uh, that, you know, stress does seem to have a major role in, um, in, in, in the symptoms that are involved in IBS. And I was wondering if you could kind of go through some of the 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 procedures or, or that you use yourself with clients to kind of help reduce stress or to kind of work on some of those other aspects of um, their lifestyle that might be affecting the, the symptoms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think one of the first things to work out is like, where is your stress coming from? And is that a modifiable source of stress? And, you know, we've got, we've got stress and then we've got ways that we can manage stress or so stress management. But if the stress is actually itself a manage, uh, modifiable stressor if it's something that you can change then fantastic like let's work on changing the stressor but often when we have stress it's not because you know if we could change whatever it was that was causing a stress then we would change it and we would get rid of it so it's more looking at stress management and making sure that you've got appropriate outlets for your stress um so whether that be you know making sure that you've got support in place whether you know do you need to uh, look externally for support so things like counselors and psychologists and those sorts of things um, in terms of the strategies that I use with my clients personally, it's looking at things like meditation, um, breath work, so focusing on you know deep uh, diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, things like yoga is also incredibly effective. There was a study, um, it was an Australian study actually, where they compared the low FODMAP diet to yoga therapy. 
Um, and what they found was that the yoga therapy was equally as effective as low FODMAP diet in reducing global symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, which is so fascinating because the diet with those who did yoga did not change at all. They kept their baseline diet, which was causing, so they had symptoms. They didn't change their diet at all. And the yoga itself, we assume it's the yoga, it was the thing that led to just as much improvement in symptoms as those who followed the low FODMAP diet, which is just incredible. That that is um, amazing. Um, like so, the, these let's say these practices, you know, be, be they uh, meditation or yoga or things like that, are they used to treat, let's say, the the acute symptoms of of IBS? Like, so if somebody is it suddenly is experiencing bowel pain, and is is you know, meditation something that they can use in that moment to help reduce it, or is it something that you know people need to practice chronically in order to deal with the the chronic pain? Yeah, so I would say more so like chronically, so like a long-term sort of benefit, again, like acting on the gut-brain axis and helping to change that communication between the gut and the brain on a like longer-term scale. But in saying that, I, I think that there is benefit in doing it acutely as well, particularly if you're finding, because what I, what I find with a lot of clients is that like when they get their symptoms, they actually get more stressed when they get the symptoms because obvious reasons, like, you know, where's the bathroom or what are people going to think of me or why does this always happen to me? I'm never going to get better. And you have all of these like automatic negative thoughts relating to the new condition, relating to the situation, and that can actually ramp up your stress response in itself. So these thoughts that you're having around it or the situation that you're in. And when we're ramping up our stress response, we're ramping up like our fight or flight, our sympathetic drive. And that's not useful in terms of our digestive tract and the functioning of our digestive tract. So um, I think it can be useful and I don't have data to, to back that up that, you know, doing diaphragmatic breathing in a, a cramping episode is going to be useful. But my clients have said that it's it's useful. Um, but yeah, focusing on just calming yourself down and you know what, like it, it, it's a shit situation. Sorry, I hope we can swear on this. Um, yeah. but it's, <laughs> um, it's, it, it's usually like it's not comfortable, the situation that they're in. It might be embarrassing. It might be... They might be having like had an accident or something like that in terms of you know not had control of their bowels, but being stressed, anxious, and worried about it is compounding the situation off, often. And so coming back to like diaphragmatic breathing or slowing down their breath um, can actually just help to make yourself feel a little bit better in that moment and maybe have a benefit on that communication between the gut and the brain and helping the digestive system function in a more optimal manner. Um, yeah, like. Again, another fascinating area of, of kind of how to, to, to deal with the, the symptoms. Um, you, like you, you mentioned yoga already. And one thing that I've, I've kind of heard a lot or I've been asked a lot is, are there any kind of contraindications when it comes to exercising for individuals who might have IBS? Um, is exercise something that they can just continue on with as normal? Um, is it something that they definitely should be doing to kind of help manage the symptoms? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so exercise is absolutely helpful in terms of anything. Like everybody should be doing some form of exercise and movement. Um, but yeah, being mindful in the irritable bowel syndrome of, you know, the effect that exercise might be having on your symptoms. Um, but in saying that, like if you are, like for example, if you're passionate about a certain sport or anything like that, I think it's worthwhile working with a um, dietitian to work out how you can actually best manage your symptoms so that you can engage in whatever exercise it is that you wish to do. So if marathon running is your thing and marathon running is horrendous for your bowels, 
Um, don't give up marathon running if that's what you want to do. There is going to be ways from like a dietary perspective that we can work around it. Um, when it comes to just like, you know, people who don't have that specific thing that they're sort of driven towards with sport, what we typically find is that like the more high intensity exercise um, is one of the ones that does tend to have more impact on the gut um, and particularly exercise. And again, it also depends on the type of irritable acid you've got. So what we typically find with like high intensity exercise or more jumping based exercise, I think we see an increased movement or motility through the uh, digestive tract and you know obviously with like marathon running we see that in that extreme case where sometimes we do see marathon runners having accidents um in terms of their bowels letting loose and again that's potentially through um other mechanisms so you know not getting enough blood flow to the gut in extreme exercise like that but in the average person exercising uh most exercise will particularly higher intensity exercise will increase the motility in the gut so that actually can be quite useful in like a constipation predominant um ibs because we're actually seeing movement happening um and keeping active is one of the first things that somebody with constipation should be doing is making sure that they are moving uh if you find that you are getting you know diarrhea and those sorts of things when it comes to exercise then it would be working with the dietitian to work out, okay, are there some dietary triggers that we can look at to try and reduce them, whether it be generally reduce them or just, you know, prior to exercise. You know, maybe it's just that your breakfast, we need to reduce the FODMAP load of your breakfast before you exercise. It's not that you actually need to have a low FODMAP diet or go through that elimination process. It's just when you exercise, we need to make sure the meal beforehand is not a high FODMAP meal. Absolutely. Um, I, like... I, I'm learning so much from just like this really, really short conversation. Uh, and like, it's up, like I could talk about this for ages. I am very, very okay. conscious. Of, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I am very conscious of your time. Though. But one thing that I kind of, I wanted to kind of get into is because, you know, you, you've mentioned some of the situations that people can deal with. Um, like you, you mentioned individuals who just don't travel because they're afraid of their symptoms flaring up. Um, you're, you've mentioned people being embarrassed about, um, you know, having a, an incident when they're, you know, out or with friends or something like that, and, and having people genuinely worried about what other people might think about them. Um, so, like, that's, again, you, you, I think you used the word debilitating earlier, and that is a, a, a kind of a debilitating set of conditions or things that somebody would have to go through. Nowadays, so if we, like, if we went back in time 10 years you would hardly hear the word IBS. It wasn't really spoken about that much. But nowadays, it's a very, very, very common term. Um, and do you think that that's a good thing in the sense of people are more aware of the condition um, and, and what it entails? Yeah, well, I, I think firstly, um, go back one level and go, well, why are we hearing about it more is also another great question. It is like, this is a question I get asked often is like, are we seeing it happening more or like, what's the reason? Why Like, why is it, is it more common? Like, is it something that we're doing that's actually making it more common? Um, and my argument with that is potentially like, and is it that we are now in this like highly stressed world that we live in? Like everybody's go, 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 like nobody's stopping. So is it a stress thing? Is it a dietary thing? Like, are we seeing such changes to our um, food composition? Like, we know most people, uh, not most people, but, you know, the world is moving towards more processed foods and those sorts of things. Um, so is that having an effect on our gut microbiome and which is leading to it? Or is it simply that we know more about it? We've got more research coming out about irritable bowel syndrome that it's creating more buzz. We've got social media. It's so easy to share information now. 
Um, and so what happens when we, when we know, when we talk more about something that people come out of the woodwork essentially and actually start to go, okay, well, yeah, I experienced this. And so it's not so much that we see more people with it. It's that the people are actually now reaching out and saying, Hey, I have this. So um, I think that's the first part of the question is yeah. Well, what's actually driving it? I've now forgotten what your initial question was. <laughs> so um, I, I was asking, do, do you think, uh, or what are your opinions on like the fact that it's becoming more well-known? Do you think it's a good thing perhaps that, oh, that people are being aware of it? Um, yeah, I do. I think it is a driver for misinformation, though. Um, and again, that's, I guess, the social media world as well. And the, the internet world is that there is just so much misinformation. So it's um, a driver for misinformation. But I think the benefit of it is that it is bringing people out of the woodworks and saying, you know, like, if you are suffering from this, that there is help available and that there is strategies that you can do that are going to reduce the uh, or improve your quality of life and reduce that sort of debilitating load. Because, yeah, some of those things is like we spoke about, it's, it's having a really big effect on the quality of life. Another one we haven't touched on is like people's sex life. It has a massive effect on people's sex life. Um, because they just don't feel confident or comfortable, you know, doing those sorts of things when they are unsure about, you know, are they going to fart or are they going to have an accident or do they just feel generally uncomfortable and unsexy because of their bloating? Um, so it has, a, it has having a big effect on it. And so if these people, if the rise in information about this and the rise in uh, popularity with this is helping those people to get help, then fantastic. Yeah, I, I suppose it, it's never... <laughs> exactly it's never uh, as cut and dry or as black and white as saying yeah it's a good thing or a bad thing there there are good things to it and there are bad things but like i suppose if it does get people moving towards the right health um that is a, a good thing about it w one thing I, I i did want to touch on just just as we, we we mentioned getting health and people becoming more kind of let's say curious about whether they have the condition or not if somebody wants to get tested for this are there easy ways for people to get tested um, or are there ways that, like, let, let's say that you are aware of that are kind of purporting to, to help people, you know, test for IBS, but are probably not all that good? Yeah. So we don't have a test for IBS, um, but there are lots of tests that people do. <laughs> Um, but they, I mean, and I don't think that those tests actually explicitly say that they test for IBS, but like common tests that people do are things like food intolerance tests. So like finger, like blood testing, sort of finger prick testing for food intolerances, which have just got no evidence behind them whatsoever to show that they show food intolerance. So please don't waste your money on those, um, uh, IgG food, food intolerance tests. Um, things that other things that people do testing for is often like the microbiome testing, um, where they send off like a stool sample to see, you know, what the gut microbiome is. Um, and I mean, it's interesting to see that sort of stuff. Like I, uh, as a bit of a nerd myself, I think it's, it's interesting to see what your microbiome looks like, but we don't know what the optimal is when it comes to the gut microbiome. So I always sort of come back to what is the actionable outcome that you can take as a result of getting that expensive test. And at this stage with the microbiome test, we don't actually have any real practical applications that we can sort of put into place. So it's not saying, okay, well, you're, you know, you're, this bacteria is not so strong in your gut, therefore you need to eat more prunes. Like we don't have those sort of specific food recommendations where we can go, because you are lower in this, it means this, therefore you have this. We just are not at that point. So yeah, if you want to have a look at what your bacteria looks like, then fantastic. But it's not actually going to result in any sort of practical health uh, implications from that. 
Um, other tests that people do, I mean, there's a whole host of ridiculous ones like looking in your eyes and those sorts of things and hair testing, hair analysis and stuff. Um, yeah, we got some crazy stuff here. I'm sure you guys will have that stuff there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cra crazy is crazy. Crazy is ubiquitous, um, unfortunately. Um, go to your doctor, folks, okay? If you think you have IPS, get a proper test and get sent to a, a proper dietitian who knows what they're actually uh, dealing with. Um, one thing, again, another thing that I wanted to mention just before we, we kind of close up is I, I'm aware that you recently launched um, a program for people with IBS to kind of help uh, help them deal with their symptoms. And I was wondering if you could kind of give us a little bit of an overview of, of what that program is and how it works. Yeah, so the program um, just launched last year is essentially the first line therapy. So a lot of the first stuff that I've gone through in this um, in a sort of really systematic manner for people to work through online in their own time in the comfort of their own home. Um, what I found was that a lot of the strategies that I was doing with IBS, that first line therapy was something that is overlooked by a lot of people. So a lot of, like we said, like a lot of people jump straight into the eliminations and those sorts of things. So um, what I've done is created a program which goes through things like, you know, firstly the education, because education is so important to me is because I think once we understand what's going on, um, like as, as somebody experiencing any condition, like understanding, okay, this is why this is happening empowers you to then make change and go you know what like actually i know now exactly how stress is influencing the gut so i'm actually now more motivated to have you know put in some strategies in place to help with my stress or i know now how sleep is affecting my gut so i'm going to put in some strategies in place so i think that education is such an important thing and for me personally I, it's something that i will infuse in everything that i do um, so education around that, uh, but then yeah, putting in place some of these specific strategies. So things like yoga. So we've got you know a yoga instructor who does a lot of yoga videos in there for um, the community, so that they can um, do that yoga therapy. Um, we've got meditations in there, uh, and then also looking at those key uh, lifestyle triggers. So things like alcohol, caffeine, smoking, exercise, um, meal timing chewing your food, all of these things and putting them into a systematic method so that, you know, week by week you can go through and implement some of these changes um, and see those improvements in your uh, irritable bowel syndrome before you actually go into something like a low FODMAP diet in the hope that you actually might not need to go into a low FODMAP diet. And I've had plenty of clients that have done this where they've, you know, done all of this first line stuff and gone, you know what, I actually don't need the low FODMAP diet anymore because stress was my biggest trigger or because my meal timing was off or my fiber wasn't right. That's and that, that program is completely online, is that right? 100% online, yeah. So anyone in the world can do it. Okay, that's fantastic. Like, it, it's, it's great to know that there's something like that that can kind of help people in, in an evidence-based way. Um, and it kind of does away with a lot of the woo-woo and focuses more on, like, like you said, the education side of things, which I, I think is, is hugely important because, you know, you want people to kind of, at the end of their time with you to be able to go away and say, I, I know what I need to do to, to, to kind of help myself and to keep myself healthy. Um, sticking with the education side of things, you also do uh, another kind of another service that you don't advertise all that frequently. Um, and that's uh, a little bit of a, a research review that you do, right? Yes, I'm very bad at promoting this. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I do a weekly sort of like industry research review, uh, which each week essentially a newsletter goes out to an email database, um, mostly dietitians and I've got a couple of students on there as well. 
uh, and essentially just like a little research digest. So a couple of new articles or interesting articles on a certain topic. So um, an example and something we actually haven't even touched on is last week's one was on hypnotherapy for IBS. So is it effective? Is it something that we should be recommending? Uh, and we just go through a couple of papers on there and go, you know, these are two or three key papers to answer that question in an evidence-based manner. That's absolutely fascinating. So everybody, if, if you want to kind of be more up to date with some of the latest information, especially stuff related with gut health or IBS, get onto Marika's, li Marika's list. Marika, you're going to have to actually make it obvious somewhere on your website that you do this so people can kind of sign no, up for it. it. It's actually not on my website, though. So if you are interested, you actually just have to email me about it. I need to put it on my website, though. But email me if you are interested. Do that. And just so people can do that, how can people get in touch with you or, or follow you more? Uh, so my Instagram is obviously here, so at Marika Day. So that's where I spend most of my time. Um, I also have Facebook, which is Marika Day Nutrition. But my website is uh, just www.marikaday.com. So all very simple, just my name. Uh, and then my email address is attached to that. So my email address is on my Instagram profile, on my website. You can submit through there. Um, so whatever's easiest for you with that. That's fantastic. Um, Marika, that's absolutely, like this, this conversation has been, eye-opening for me um and, and like th these are genuinely my, my my favorite conversations when i i'm just learning things that i i had no idea about before and like just you know even if it's a few bits of information here and there i've loved this conversation it's been so good um everybody if you're not following marika already do it please um and i just want to say thank you so much for joining me tonight um i really really appreciate you giving your time um and giving all of this information um because i think again it's it's an area in nutrition um that really suffers from a lot of misinformation so it's great to know that there's kind of people like you out there that are um you know no bullshit basically um so uh thank you very very much and um i want to i want to also wish you a, a very happy holiday because i know you're off on vacation tomorrow. So um, thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll get to chat again soon. Yes, we we'll love that. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. If you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media. It really helps to spread word of the podcast and it really means a huge amount to me personally. Uh, if you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of our guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at be underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.